Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Fergus Bordwick about his new book, Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant and the Battle to Save Reconstruction, which tells the story of how President Grant, his Attorney General Amos Ackerman, and Major Lewis Merrill led the successful multi-year assault on the Ku Klux Klan. Fergus is one of America's leading independent historians. He is the author of eight previous award-winning nonfiction books, including The First Congress, How James Madison, George Washington, and a Group of Extraordinary Men Invented the Government, which won the D.B. Hardiman Prize in American History. Fergus Bordewick, welcome to That Said. Thank you, Michael. I'm very happy to talk to you. So I love to start these interviews by asking our authors to tell us a little bit about themselves. Uh, sure. Uh I'm an historian and a writer and a journalist. I uh, have uh, published all about, uh, all told about a dozen books, most of nearly all the, of them in American history between the founding period and the now Reconstruction. Uh, previously, I was a journalist for many years. I worked in different parts of the world writing uh, mostly about uh, political, economic, social issues. I came back to the United States in the 1990s and felt that I hadn't and no longer really quite understood the United States. And, and, and I began turning to history. And, and uh, this, these books that I've been writing are the fruit of a long, ongoing, and, and, uh, and uh, thus far, fairly unstoppable effort to understand the country, or at least how, what, what's made us. Well, and when you read these books, you get a very clear picture of what is making us. So it's a great series of, of explanations, which I think readers will benefit from if they read not only this book, but, but the predicates uh, to it. This book you write is the story of how the federal government, under President Ulysses S. Grant and Attorney General Amos Ackerman, fought and defeated the Ku Klux Klan, which by all historical accounts, in your estimation, was the first organized terrorist movement in American history. So why did you pick this topic? Well, a couple of reasons. One, I'd been thinking about it for a long time. Uh, to, to a degree, it evolved out of my last book, Congress at War, which is about how the U.S. Congress fought the Civil War. And there's some overlap in the individuals I write about here. Uh, Thaddeus Stevens, the famous a uh, uh, radical Republican floor leader in, in the House, um, among others. Uh, so the the aftermath of the Civil War was already in my mind when I was writing the last book. That said, uh, as a young person, college, I went to the City College in New York, uh, I did uh, voter registration in the South in the 1960s. And I, 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 I um, had confrontations with the Ku Klux Klan of that era, which I want to underscore is a different clan from the original one of the 1870s. There's no complete through line of history, but nonetheless, the, the clan that I knew from the 1960s certainly uh, brought home vividly the capacity of, of Americans uh, to um, embrace demagogic violence, even barbaric violence, uh, to undermine, subvert uh, democratic institutions, and particularly to target African Americans who merely want to exercise their constitutional rights. Finally, and this this 
relates to what I just said, is that I have for many, many years, even when I was a, a journalist working abroad, been preoccupied with the problem of how ordinary, seemingly civilized human beings can succumb to barbarism. That line between civilization and barbarism can be very, very thin. I, anyone, and I hope everyone, therefore, who understands what happened in Europe before World War II, and you could mention other parts of the globe in later years, uh, knows that that's an urgent question. It doesn't go away. We Americans are not exempt in any way from the possibility for for practicing terrible, terrible uh, barbarism on our own people. You know, it's interesting that you say this because when I finished reading the book, the books that I went back to to just sort of look through to refresh my recollection were Hannah Arendt's book on totalitarianism and Samantha Power's book on a problem from hell about um, holocausts, I guess. And um, you're absolutely right that we are hardly immune um, from this and the world in which we live now is moving in a, in a frightening direction. So this book is broken into four parts and I'd like to sort of go through the parts um, as best we can, uh, knowing that we won't get through everything and it'll be an invitation for our listeners to go purchase this book and fill in the stuff that we don't get to. Part one is called The Terror. And I thought maybe the best way to go through this initial period is to talk about in a, like sort of a brief history lesson sort of way, what was going on in, in the South during this time. And I think of it in terms of both the positive and the, the negative. And so let's start with the positive, you know, the Freedmen's Bureau and the Radical Republicans' control of Congress and what legislation they were trying to pass. So talk about the positive, and then we'll turn to the unfortunate negative. Okay, okay let's do that. Um, well, Okay, the war ends, the Civil War ends in uh, 1865. The South is is prostrate. It's been defeated, decisively, completely defeated. Slavery has been overthrown. Um, the South, one way or another, is going to be rebuilt. It's going to change, change and change radically. In Washington, uh, the Republican Party, the dominant Republican Party, which was the forward-looking party, you could call it the progressive party of the time, although that's a kind of an anachronistic use of the word, um, is for that, for a brief period of time, dominated and driven by radical Republicans. Those, the term radical does not mean, did not mean then what it means today. Uh, these were men, they were, all were men, of course, who were committed to... Uh, uh, Equal rights for African-Americans. They are the drivers of the post-Civil War Reconstruction Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th. And they are also committed to restructuring the South in a way that's based on free labor, including free white and African-American labor, to destroy the old plantation system, the, the, uh, the quasi-aristocratic way in which the South was governed, which excluded, in large part, many white voters, not only black voters, blacks from voting. Um, so at any rate, radical Republicans are, for a time, in the driver's seat. 
immediately after the war, they are thwarted by Andrew Johnson, uh, who becomes president after Abraham Lincoln's assassinated. Johnson was never a Republican. He's, a, he's essentially a Southern Democrat, but a unionist who stayed with the union during the war and does his best to thwart uh, forward-looking plans to rebuild the South. Nonetheless, what's happening? You refer to the Freedmen's Bureau. This is an agency that's created uh, in Washington to help uh, uh, protect, educate, and sustain the, the f roughly 4 million free people in the South after the war. It also, incidentally, many people don't know this, also was there to serve the needs of displaced and impoverished white Southerners who were also invited to any schools that the Freedmen's Bureau built. They received rations from the, from the Freedmen's Bureau, and they could go to the Freedmen's Bureau with problems. It mainly served African-Americans, but it was biracial in its intent. So the Freedmen's Bureau establishes bureaus all over the South. Freedmen, uh, free people, women as well, flock to it. Uh, Freedmen's Bureau, as well as Northern churches and other entities build schools all over the zone, thousands of schools. And one of the most remarkable aspects of Reconstruction, uh, and I knew a great deal about this, and it was still remarkable, is the the flood of, of African-Americans to be schooled. People knew that literacy was was the, was the route to to success in society and, and to being able to become masters of their own destiny and so forth. So you have not just children, but you have mature people, uh, older people, former slaves en masse seeking to be educated. This is a great transformational process. What else is happening? Um, for the first time in American history, uh, African-Americans, this includes obviously free people, but also those who were free before the war, as well as African-Americans from elsewhere who come south to help try to rebuild the South uh, along the lines of Reconstruction, are elected to office. African-Americans enter office. Thousands are elected. Now, your, your listeners, of course, will know that the 15th Amendment federally uh, uh, gave everyone the right to vote, former slaves the right to vote. However, the states in the South now govern increasingly by either for time by the military or later by reconstruction Republican governments give um, uh, the franchise the right to vote to African-Americans before the 15th Amendment. So black Americans are voting in southern states from about 1868 on uh, in very large numbers, huge numbers. The enthusiasm of free people for democracy, for learning how to be citizens is quite remarkable. Their embrace of the system. There never was any great slave rebellion, which the, the, the defenders of slavery were constantly ranting and raving about. Never happened. Never happened. Instead, people embraced the American system. Anyway, so uh, you have thousands of free people being elected to local offices, constables, magistrates, mayors, town council members, then state legislatures, eventually to the U.S. Congress. Um, about 32, unless I'm mistaken, uh, African-Americans become members of Congress uh, during the Reconstruction period. 
So these are these are these are really dramatic processes, which of course are revolutionary. This is a revolution that's taking place, a, a revolution in uh, the the hierarchical, rigid, anti-democratic society that had governed the South before the war. Yeah, and you get in this period the Civil Rights Act of 1866. The 14th Amendment is passed in 1866, ratified in 1868. And I want to, because we're in the times that we're in, look at the 14th Amendment a little bit uh, because it declares that um, Black people are citizens and that the... the um, Federal courts are empowered to overturn state discriminatory laws um, and fundamental rights like freedom and speech and assembly are and trial by jury are all protected. But why I say I want to talk about this just for a minute to get your perspective on it, it also precludes those who took an oath to support the Constitution and then who joined the Confederacy from returning and holding state and federal office. This is the Section 3 part of the 14th Amendment. And there's a great deal of conversation about this, of course, because the Supreme Court heard argument about whether Section 3 was self-executing, meaning it went into effect immediately, or whether Congress under Section 5 needed to give effect to it. And I've, on my television appearances have said that it would be an interesting turn of events if the decision was that these states who uh, were anti-democratic to begin with and would remain anti-democratic if they were given free choice would be given the decision-making power as to who could hold office. That The 14th Amendment, Section 3, was an empowering of the federal government at the expense of the state government. So if you could talk a little bit about, give us a modern history lesson, and then I'd like to uh, turn a bit uh, to the sadder part of this thing, which is uh, what I'm calling the negative side of this period. Sure. Well, I agree with the way you just presented that. This this was a measure that was intended, as you just said, to, to uh, give power to the federal government not to empower states to 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 um, uh, throw people off ballots. Uh, uh, in our present day, of course, many millions of Americans would like to see a certain person thrown off ballots. Uh, the Supreme Court, it uh, it seems, is leaning very much in the other direction. Uh, we we don't know yet, but but there's a decision imminent, and it would seem to more or less span the political spectrum. Uh, that that provision of the 14th Amendment, despite the fact that there are, are quite a few historians uh, today who very much want to see the states be able to exclude, um, uh, well, Donald Trump under, under the provisions of this amendment, I have to say I am more skeptical that it's legal that that this is what the Fourteenth Amendment meant or intended, uh, I, I'm not. I'm just not persuaded. Um, the, the context of 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 the Fourteenth Amendment, okay, I think demand, demands it a little bit of explanation here, which is to say that Reconstruction is a process. The empowerment of African Americans in the South is a process. It doesn't happen all at once. It's, it doesn't happen 
in quite the same way everywhere, and it doesn't happen just when the four, uh, the, the the well the Fifteenth Amendment uh, is is ratified. It's it's taking place at different speeds in different places. Whites in the South, uh, unreconstructed po- post Confederates, have done their best to exclude Black Americans from voting and participating in public life, and we'll, we'll get to the Ku Klux Klan in a minute because that's that was part of the uh, the strategies that were used. Um, and it required uh, uh, the federal government to, to one, uh, prevent states from doing that. And two, it was very, very specifically targeted at, at Confederate office holders. Now, in practical terms, uh, Andrew Johnson, was, as we know, was a himself basically a Democrat who saw his future as depending on re-empowering Southern whites, uh, is raining pardons, uh, pardons uh, for former Confederates by the bushelful, by bushels, uh, sitting uh, over here in the White House. Uh, and so, in fact, there are not very many former Confederates are actually suffering under that law because the president has already given them pardons. Uh, and there, it's a, there's a continuous debate in Congress over this, but it, it's kind, it, it becomes pretty academic, frankly. And uh, I think in our present day, I mean, there's certainly room for debate over the word insurrection. Uh, the Civil War was a mass insurrection involving a war that went on for four years and took 750,000 lives uh, that, that w- whose intent was laid out clearly in secession ordinances and in, in uh, the marching of armies, okay? Uh, it was not a singular event, which as appalling as it, January 6th I'm talking about here, as appalling as it was and as offensive to democracy as it was, remains a singular event that that is is i think somewhat ambiguous by that definition so that's where i come down on it i don't think it's simple to unravel yeah no it's not simple at all um and we'll see how the supreme court um interprets it you you said something a minute ago which was that um blacks uh were registering to vote in, in massive numbers. The, the 15th Amendment is passed in 1869, ratified in 1870, but under state constitutions there, blacks are given the right to vote. And in some states, notably South Carolina, which will feature prominently in our discussion in, in a few minutes, blacks essentially outnumber whites. And, and they are electing, as you said, legislators at the state uh, level. And in fact, I think not in South Carolina, but wasn't um, Hiram, Hiram Revels, is that his name? Was he the first U.S. senator um, who takes the vacated seat of Jefferson Davis in a, in a wonderful irony, right? From Mississippi, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the first black senator takes the head of the Confederacy's um, seat in Mississippi. But anyway, so blacks are electing um, the either radical white Republicans or radical black Republicans or uh, black legislators, and the, the South is going crazy. Um, 
the 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 prospect it seems to me to them that um, through emancipation, especially poor whites, the dirt farmers, are going to somehow fall in line behind the blacks on the social hierarchy schedule, uh, that which um, Isabel Wilkerson wrote so poignantly about in her book *Cast*. They they just they can't they can't tolerate it, and along comes Nathan Bedford Forrest. Who was he and what did he represent? Uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, some people, uh, I think some listeners, maybe many, will recognize the name because he was a, uh, within the Confederacy, a much honored and admired uh, charismatic cavalry general who uh, was effective, often operating behind Union lines uh, during the Civil War. Before the war, he was an extremely wealthy slave trader. He made a fortune buying and selling human beings based in Memphis, Tennessee. Very wealthy man. Uh, he then joined the Confederate Army, as I said, became a general eventually. In that capacity, he uh, uh, was a war criminal. He presided over the worst war crime ever committed on U.S. soil outside the Indian Wars, and that is the slaughter of, of disarmed black federal troops at a place called Fort Pillow, Tennessee, near Memphis in 1864. Uh, black troops were shot down after surrendering. They were murdered uh, 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 in, in, in large numbers. This is very well documented. There are still a few people who like to deny that this really happened this way. It's extremely well documented, including by former Confederates who thought it was a great idea, uh, even though they were pulled by the bloodshed. After the war, uh, he, he's shifting around, trying to rebuild his fortunes somehow or other, not being very successful at it. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan, I have, to, I have to say a word about how it, how it came into being. It was founded in 1866 by a group of uh, college-educated uh, Confederate veterans. And I want to say here, by the way, the Klan is, is mostly led and largely populated by local elites. It's not a bunch of just losers and louts um, uh, by any means. It's not just uh, poor, poor, ignorant dirt farmer types. It, it's often doctors, lawyers, uh, office holders, members of law enforcement, even now and again ministers and journalists. People of that, of that ilk are the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan. Anyway, so this first group initially starts out, sets out to, to um, create a, a kind of young men's fraternity to entertain themselves in, in the ruined landscape of, of post-war Tennessee, Pulaski, Tennessee. And uh, among their various antics, which are mostly pretty harmless at, at the founding, is... Uh, uh, dressing up in bizarre costumes and scaring local newly freed African-Americans who are beginning to assert themselves in public life. That aspect of the Klan metastasizes very rapidly in Tennessee initially. And about six months later, there's a meeting in Nashville and a group of pretty high-ranking former Confederate officers sets out to turn this local phenomenon into, into an organization, and an organization that will be based on terrorism. 
it, its two goals will be these. One is to scare black Americans uh, as much as possible out of public life and back toward servility. And second, to destroy the embryonic two-party system in the South. There had been no Republican Party in the South before the war. It's new. It's being created. It's a biracial party. Very important to understand. Initially, it's biracial. Poorer whites and, and some elite whites are joining the Republican Party because they've, they're glad to be done with slavery and they believe in a kind of free labor society and so on. So the Klan wants to uh, uh, scare blacks out of public life and destroy the Republican Party. Nathan Bedford Forrest is recruited, this, this former slave trader, war criminal, uh, uh, dis disgruntled plantation owner, is recruited to become the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, in that capacity, he bring what does he bring? He brings charisma, his wartime charisma, uh, and very wide connections uh, among former former Confederate officers and 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 enlisted men, especially in that part of the South. And in short, he becomes the the primary organizer of the Klan. This was done sub rosa. Uh, uh, it's very hard to 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 get full detail on this. But at any rate, he travels around the South in the guise of somebody representing an insurance company. He goes out. It's a cover job, and setting up uh, individual clans, dens. Either, the words are simultaneous: clan small, small K, and dens in different places around the South. Wherever it then appears, violence soon follows. And it should be said that even at, even though at the beginning, the Klan has this organizing group in Tennessee, based in Nashville, it spreads very rapidly in 1867, 68, 69, all over the former Confederate South. And uh, it, it, the, the hierarchical element pretty much disappears. It's not as if Forrest and these people in Tennessee are kind of telling everybody in North Carolina and Arkansas and Georgia what to do. The Klan is highly decentralized, but it's based on the model that was created in Tennessee and uses the same founding document, which is a kind of constitution declaring what its purposes are. And they are very clear what I said before. Yeah. And it's to, as one um, Klansman testified, uh, as you represented in the book, was he was there to prevent his words. He was there to prevent colored men from elevating themselves equal with whites and to overthrow the Republican Party in, in the South. Precisely. And, 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 and the model that um, Nathan Bedford Forrest employs is really sort of a, a guerrilla war type of, of tactics. And I just want to, before we take our first break, talk a little bit about sort of the sadistic brutality of the, the violence that the Klan um, perpetrated uh, in, the, in these years. Yeah, I, I want to say, uh, uh, by way of preface to answering your questions, the book does not obsessively dwell on, on the sadistic element. It's, it's important to be clear that it was sadistic and barbaric. People were tortured. People were murdered. Women were raped. Children were killed. Uh, appalling things, truly appalling things, were done to 
uh, unarmed and isolated individuals, which is how the Klan really operated. Appalling things were done. The book moves back and forth between what's happening on the ground in the South and debates in Washington that that are trying to cope with with um, uh, this this wave of terror in the South and eventually craft legislation that will enable Ulysses Grant to deal with it. So, um, uh, I mean, less less people listening to this uh, think, "Oh my God, how much of this can I read?" Uh, it's uh, you know, I I. I tried to show you enough that you are going to understand and you're going to be appalled at at at, at what was done and and uh with for several years no consequences because the clan um had either co-opted or terrified local law enforcement in the south and that's and that's what i wanted to get at fergus that that and and you're exactly right this was not like cast which every chapter was another horror here you said, here's the context in which we're operating. But I just want the people to understand that the Klan during this time were a brutally sadistic white nationalist terror organization whose criminality is sort of beyond under understanding, except as it was um, founded in, in their racist ideology. Yeah, uh, I mean, at least a bare minimum of about 2,000 people were murdered by the Klan. The number is undoubtedly considerably larger because many people were killed at isolated places. Their deaths went unrecorded or ignored. You read, you read reports, and there will be some vague or Negro killed six miles from such and such a town, um, and so on, often without a name, without without a sequence of events. Um, but two thousand, more than two thousand, have been fully documented. So. Multiply that number by by those who were uh, beaten, shot, uh, uh, tortured in different ways, very, very cruelly. Men were castrated. Men were castrated. Uh, 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 children were raped sometimes. It's just walling. Um, and and the even larger numbers who were who were terrified for fear of their lives, uh, be, being. Uh, uh, threatened with these kinds of crimes if they if they didn't shut up, not vote, stay home, and and, and obey whoever the white man was that they were contracted to work for. At this point, um, the the uh, I mean, terror has different dimensions. Uh, I mean, they're they're virtually everywhere the Klan operated. These terrible cruelties were perpetrated. Um, but each each crime, each rape, of course, ramified through an entire, typically isolated, rural black community. Most people are living in the countryside at this time. In the South, it's not urbanized very much. Uh, and the Klan will typically, in a group of 10, 20, 30, sometimes 100 men ride into a, into a mostly black hamlet and start dragging people out of their homes into the road shooting them, raping women in the road. I mean, terrible, you know, terrible degradation was perpetrated against women, particularly. Um, and uh, it became the, the uh, it became the, 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 the tragic human landscape of entire swaths of the South. So we're going to take our first break and then we'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
We're back. We're talking with Fergus Bordewick about his book, Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant and the Battle to Save Reconstruction. So we left off talking about the brutality of the Klan and into this steps Ulysses S. Grant. So tell us about Grant. Who was he and, and what was he sort of in relation to matters of race? We all know Grant, of course, was the um, commander of uh, Union armies uh, who brought the the uh, Civil War to a close, a successful close in uh, 1864 and 65, took Lee's surrender at Appomattox and so on. But who was Grant beyond that? Grant's family originally came from Connecticut, but he was he was raised in Ohio. He was born in Ohio on the Ohio River. That's That's, of course, the dividing line west of the Appalachians between the world of slavery and freedom. Uh, his father was an abolitionist. Grant was not a political abolitionist uh, at all. Uh, he seems before the Civil War to have been pretty much apolitical. We're not interested in politics anyway. Um, certainly, he, he, he disdained slavery. Uh, a, 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 key, a key event in his, his life was the fact that when he married, his in-laws, who were slave owners in, in St. Louis, where Grant was living, gave gave him the wedding pre- a wedding present of an enslaved man. And I, I have to believe that this just appalled Grant, but, it was, but he was in the world of slavery. It was a wedding present, and Grant, Grant was barely scraping by. Uh, and he freed this man after a year. He could have sold him. He chose not to sell him. He could have used the thousand dollars or so that he he would have gotten had he sold him. So, uh, I mean, that's a moral decision. I mean, I think there there are in some corners there there are those who will condemn Grant for having ever owned a slave. Grant condemned himself for it, I think. Uh, but it should be remembered that he could have sold him, but didn't. Okay, and this is a a signpost for how Grant is evolving. Uh, during the Civil War, he's a very successful general in the Western theater of war, west of the Appalachians, and he welcomes fugitive slaves into his camps. He provides for them, uh, sees when possible that their children get some education. This is this is not typical. Many federal officers would return fugitive slaves to their masters in the early years of the war before the Emancipation Proclamation. Not all Northerners were abolitionists. Uh, many of them had no interest in the fate of African-Americans whatsoever, said to say. We'd like to think they did, but they didn't. Grant, Grant was different. He did care. He was a very sensitive man, a very unusual uh, for a high-ranking military officer, West Pointer, of course. And he also welcomed the recruitment of black troops during the war, which also set him apart from many other high-ranking federal officers, including his closest uh, military friend, William Tecumseh Sherman, arguably the best uh, general of all in the federal army during the Civil War. Sherman was a deep racist, a deep racist and refused to have any black troops in his forces. Grant welcomed them. He had quite a few black troops in the last year of the war when when he uh, brought Lee to heel in Virginia. Um, so he understood that that enslaved people 
uh, were fully human, like himself. Um, and he was an advance of his, I think, of, 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 of many, maybe most men in his era. In that, in that understanding, which is self-evident today, it was not self-evident in the 1860s. Uh, and uh, after the war, uh, he remains commander of the army uh, under Andrew Johnson. He's very much at odds with Johnson over various policies. Uh, I mean, he increasingly sees Johnson losing the peace that he that Grant and his armies had won uh, by force of arms in the war, and Grant certainly sees the end of slavery and increasingly the citizenship and empowerment of Black Americans as one of the great, maybe arguably among the greatest uh, achievements of the federal victory. And he, and this will inform his presidency, he is determined to prevent uh, the, the North's victory being squandered by, by, by Northern politicians and uh, uh, who, who are too eager to reconcile with the Confederate, post-Confederate South. Grant's elected president, 1868. He's already has, has, supported the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and he will support, vigorously support the 15th Amendment, uh, guaranteeing uh, African-Americans the right to vote um, throughout the country, including the North. They were, they were not embarrassed to vote in many Northern states, by the way. People don't realize that. Uh, it was a mixture. Only in New England were Blacks really uh, free to vote uh, in, in the normal way. It was random or non-existent elsewhere. Sorry, fifteenth was more radical than we think. Actually, the Freedmen's Bureau that we talked about is sort of a quasi-military organization, and and Grant is responsible for that. And in his tours of the South on behalf of President Johnson, he reports back that he thinks that they've turned the corner. The South has, and that um, men of, of of good faith will allow this. Um, freedom to, to to take hold, and of course, it, it doesn't. And he runs for president, uh, in some sense, in response to Andrew Johnson's indifference to to the brutality. As you say, the South is winning uh, a war they lost militarily through uh, acts of, of terror and state constitutional changes. So he gets elected in eighteen. 68, he's, I guess he's sworn in in March of, of 69. Um, and you're right that his election came at a time of rising hope for supporters of the new order brought on by the Northern Civil War victory in every Southern state. It was his hope that they could have a peaceful coexistence. But he soon realizes that's not not to be the the, the case. And you're right that on March 30, 1870, Grant signs a document that changed America. And um, tell us about this. Texas becomes the state. The 15th Amendment becomes ratified. And, and, and Grant is now going to enforce it. I want to give Grant a slightly more credit than you gave him in your intro to this question. Please. You know him better than I. Uh, um yeah, we, yeah we, have, we have coffee all the time. But uh, um, the, the, he made 
only one tour of the South in which he was kind of um, hornswoggled by by elite Southerners. It was right after the end of the war. Andrew Johnson does send him to the South on a allegedly a tour of inspection. And granted, only in the South for about three weeks. And he's whined and dined by uh, Southerners who flatter him and praise him and offer him a pretty sunny view of what the South is going to be and how uh, everything's going to be fine between the races. And Grant uh, swallows the hook on that. However, another man is touring the South at the same time, uh, Carl Schwartz, soon to become a U.S. senator, a radical Republican at the time, later not so radical. Uh, Schwartz uh, spends much longer and he talks to everybody in the South, including black Southerners, and reports back in detail on the violence that's already spreading all over the South. And Grant apologizes. He admits that he he failed. In 1865, he already has has, uh, he was willing. It's very important about Grant. He's open. He's an open-minded man. He's stubborn often, but also open-minded. He he he's willing to admit that he, that he failed to see uh, the extent of of anarchy, disorder, and violence in the South. So uh, I mean that that is the real through line for his development. Uh, I I think he's so often been underrated that it's important I think to give him credit where to do. Okay. Fair enough. So in 1870, uh, uh, it's a crisis year. It's a crisis year. Um, black Americans are voting in huge numbers in the South, in huge numbers. They, in fact, were the deciding vote already uh, in his election in 1868. 400,000 blacks, I believe, voted. Uh, uh, maybe misestimating, but it's something like that in 1868. Uh, so blacks matter a great deal as voters at this point. So it becomes not just a human rights, civil rights issue, but also a pragmatic political issue to pr- pr- protect uh, black voters in the South and to protect, therefore, also reconstruction governments in the South, uh, which are biracial. There was never any such thing as black rule in the South, a term that, that has been flogged by defenders of the lost cause then and even later, uh, as if the South were being governed by heavy-handed and and, uh, ill-fitted black office holders supported by federal bayonets. This is lost cause mythology. You know, we should just scrub it. It's it's, uh, that that is revisionist history. Uh, going back to the truth is not revisionism, okay, as we're, we're doing now. Uh, and uh, uh, the pres- pressure increases steadily uh, to do something about the rampant Ku Klux Klan in the South. Uh, pressure builds in the North. You need some context here, which is to say that the North is war-weary. The war took probably 450,000 Union lives. Uh, there's some dispute about the numbers, but anyway, it's a, a minimum of 350, more likely about 450,000. Touch every family in the North in one way or another. Uh, Northerners are beginning to become tired of the South's problems. They weren't really prepared 
for the commitment that Reconstruction required. And there's a lot of ambivalence in the North, even about African-Americans participating on an equal plane with white Americans. There's enormous optimism among Black Americans and among uh, abolitionists and so on, and radical Republicans. They're significant, but there are plenty of Northerners who don't really like that very much. So the political ground is gradually shifting uh, during this period. Uh, the numbers of radicals being elected to office in the North is declining. But nonetheless, there's pressure building on Grant. And Grant, Grant, Grant understands it and accepts it to do something about the violence in the South, uh, to, 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 bring, to bring the Klan to its knees. And um, uh, the result, and, and bear in mind, too, this isn't Grant acting unilaterally. It requires Congress. And I think Congress too often gets written out of, uh, of American political history because we tend to think today in our own time as the presidency as the main engine of power in Washington. In the 19th century, it was primarily Congress. Uh, and Grant saw his role as president very much in keeping with his era as carrying out the will of Congress, not telling Congress what his agenda was and expecting them to enact it. It's, it's different from today. Congress passes three enforcement acts, force acts, enforcement acts. The third is the Ku Klux Klan Act. Uh, tech, it, it, that, that's the, what everybody, the name that everybody calls it by. It's an enforcement act. These three, each one stronger than the one before, uh, gives uh, the president uh, extraordinary powers to... Uh, crack down on the Klan. The definitions are extremely precise of what the activity is that's being that's being made illegal, being made federal crimes. Up to this point, um, murder, for example, and terrorism are not federal crimes. They're not federal crimes. This is a watershed in American history. Uh, only the states have been deemed responsible for prosecuting murder, for example. Uh, and as a, we said earlier in this conversation, uh, state law enforcement is totally unreliable, not to mention the fact that even where there may be a local prosecutor willing to prosecute the Klan, he can't get a jury. He can't get a jury that's willing to prosecute the Klan, uh, to convict, rather, to convict the Klan. So for the first time in American history, the federal government is taking responsibility for crimes like uh, uh, crimes committed uh, uh, in in the course of Klan raids, even going uh, going uh, masked on a, on 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 a public highway, entering a house, invading a house in disguise, and so on, which are typical of the Klan's behavior, and a number of other provisions. And these 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 three acts give uh, Grant, including the suspension of habeas corpus, in other words, uh, the ability to to prosecute um, uh, 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 individuals who are members of the Klan to suspend local law enforcement. In, and that happens in nine counties. It's not general across the South, though it could have been. Grant will pick out nine counties in South Carolina to concentrate on, uh, to set an example for the rest of the South. Um, yeah, and this is kind of where we are as 1871 ones. Right. And so the, the KKK Act, which Interestingly, 
um, in its final form and for the first time, as you said, empowers federal courts to protect individual citizens in the exercise of their constitutional rights, the 14th Amendment. It allows for the punishment of conspiracies to deprive citizens of those rights, something that hadn't been thought of previously. Now, of course, in modern criminal law, it's bread and butter stuff for prosecutors. And it also provided for punishment for those who knew of imminent outrages, but didn't report them. You can't sit back silently and and sort of have no responsibility. And it uses, it empowers the president to use the army to suppress groups seeking to deny citizens equal protection, which means military tribunals, which is where you get for the first time justice, because you'll now have juries, if you will, that will actually listen to evidence and render verdicts based on uh, that that evidence. Yes? Yeah. Uh, there, uh, it, it, it should be said that most, by far, most planned prosecutions are, are take place in civil courts. Uh, they, they are they are car- those prosecutions are generally carried out by um, uh, federal prosecutors, and this is an important aspect of, of Grant's, as I call it, war against the Klan. Um, he has an extremely uh, effective attorney general, Amos Ackerman. We referred to him earlier. Uh, Amos Ackerman, um, a Southern Republican from Georgia, uh, who who sends federal prosecutors into southern states specifically to prosecute the Klan. And in in uh, most cases, it's those federal prosecutors, not, not military officers who are actually carrying out the prosecutions. And it's important to make this distinction because there's another part of the Lost Cause myth. It is that the South was under military rule. And this is wildly exaggerated. By the way, you might take parenthetically, how many federal troops were there in the South? Let's say in 1868, 1870, 1868, 12,000, 12,000 spread over 11 states, and a third of them are on the Texas frontier facing Indians. So there is no military occupation of the South. And military men will will help round up Klansmen, very, very importantly. So uh, they will arrest, they have the power to arrest them, but they will hand them over usually to to Republican federal prosecutors. And as long as the army is in the South, where it is in the South, and able to guarantee due process within the courts, it works. The system works quite well. Juries feel protected. Prosecutors are able to prosecute. Witnesses are willing to testify. Uh and this, of course, is regarded by reactionary Southern whites, uh, uh, post-Confederates, as 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 all a series of outrages. I mean, they, the Klan believes in what it's doing, and and the white power structures or its its heirs in the South uh, are proud of being white supremacists. That's not a that I'm not using projecting that term back into the 1870s. This is what they said they were. Uh, so anything that undermines white supremacy and makes whites responsible for crimes committed against blacks is regarded in conf- kind of post-Confederate lingo, lost cause lingo, as an outrage. Uh, so the army, the army, uh, as I said, key point here is assisting uh, prosecutors 
not riding roughshod over over local institutions, but facilitating, enabling local institutions to work the way they're supposed to. Okay, so I want to take a break for uh, our second time, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about part three and part four. Um, uh, part three is uh, war, and part four um, deals more with the amnesty um, that, that truly undoes a lot of what Grant endeavored to do. So we'll take a break. We're back talking with Fergus Bordewick about his new book, Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant and the Battle to Save Reconstruction. Now, you mentioned before the break um, Amos Ackerman, who is really the first modern attorney general. When you think of attorney generals now, you think of prosecutors who are in charge of a vast force of federal prosecutors. Previous to Ackerman, mostly they were like White House counsel, in a sense. They weren't attorneys general. He is this attorney general, and he has this authority to prosecute under the uh, Third Enforcement Act, the KKK Act. And he has with him, uh, to provide intelligence, Major Lewis Merrill. So tell us about how Merrill and Ackerman go about um, what is the subtext of the book, which is the battle to save the save Reconstruction with the war on the Ku Klux Klan. Well, as I said uh, a few minutes ago, uh, when Grant moves against the Klan, with congressional backing, this is all by law. He's not he's not acting like a, a czar, uh, as again Lost Cause defenders claimed. Um, but he has full full legislative backing for this, and he 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 um, targets upcountry South Carolina as the test case. Uh, if he can break the Klan in one of its most intense nurseries. Uh, it will demonstrate that the federal government is prepared to break the Klan everywhere. And I should say that that there are actions being taken in other states as well. It's not only South Carolina, but South Carolina is is is, is the model case. Um, Grant sends uh, many more troops, in, about a thousand altogether. This is not a giant number, but uh, 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 he sends about a thousand ultimately into South Carolina. They are most most of them under the command of Major Lewis Merrill, who is a very interesting guy. He looms very large in my book. Um, uh, Merrill was a pre-war abolitionist from Pennsylvania. He was a West Point graduate. He spent the Civil War um, as a cavalry officer chasing down Confederate guerrillas in Missouri. He was also a lawyer, so he had a, a very unusual ensemble of experience experiences uh that that enabled him to bring bring down the clan which he did he was the man who broke the clan most of merrill's troops though he commanded a couple of different units were members of his regiment the seventh cavalry now many listeners uh will recognize or know that they've heard about the seventh cavalry it was george custer's unit that was nearly wiped out at the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876. So why wasn't Custer in command? He was the colonel of the regiment. Because Custer was a reactionary Democrat who hated Reconstruction, and he spent this period racing horses mostly in in, uh, in Kentucky and um, 
uh, uh, swanning around New York City going to the theater and so on. Anyway, Merrill was the perfect man. Uh, and uh, he was backed by Amos Ackerman, the attorney general, who's present through, through much of this period in South Carolina. He gets on the train, he goes to South Carolina to oversee the legal prosecution. So what Merrill does, in short, I wrote a great deal about this in the books, much more than I time to say too much about here. Uh, Merrill penetrates the Klan with spies, both white and black. Like any good prosecutor, he begins breaking the Klan from the bottom up, which is to say he finds vulnerable men who were even uh, 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 defectors from the Klan, and he uses them as informants. Uh, and and very quickly, from them learns who who is running the Klan, who its members are, by the way, 60 to 70% of the white males in that part of South Carolina are members of the Klan. And many of the rest are sympathetic with it. Uh, so this is, this is the, the core of white society here. So uh, he begins to break people uh, higher and higher and higher up in the Klan. He also uses black spies. Well, how could that be? How could blacks be spies in the Ku Klux Klan? The population in that region is about equally divided between blacks and whites. Blacks work for whites. Uh, whites didn't credit blacks with being intelligent enough to pay attention to what they were saying. But so black informants hear an enormous amount about what Klansmen are saying, about what their plans are, what their next targets are going to be, who they're planning to kill or, 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 or kidnap. So from these two streams, Merrill has an enormous amount of information. And he uses his cavalry to chase down the Klan. Um, it's important that they're cavalry because the Klan is typically operating on horseback. Infantry were useless, for the most part, in, in combating the Klan. Uh, now, the Klan, it should be said, were, in their own minds anyway, extremely brave when they, were, when they were confronting unarmed men, women, and children in their lonely cabins in the hinterland south carolina or anywhere else and uh uh went whom they would attack in a mob drag people out and kill or torture them as it said uh but faced with the with with the veteran troops of the seventh cavalry uh well armed and 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 uh, willing to fight the clan also imploded so between the pressure from spies breaking it from the inside and the seventh cavalry coming at it uh uh from the outside the Klan disintegrated, essentially. Uh, about 5,000 members were, were ultimately arrested in that part of South Carolina over a span of about a year or so. Five, this, this is an enormous number in a rural, a rural region. Uh, others fled. They fled to other states, uh, some as far as Texas, as a matter of fact. In some cases, uh, those who fled who, who were, who were high-ranking leaders of the Klan were pursued as far as Texas and as far as Canada, in one instance that I write about it, like in the book. We won't get into it here. Uh, and uh, I, very few Klansmen are actually killed, which I use the word war. It was a war, but uh, the army was extremely judicious in, in using, using at every step constitutional means. Uh, to to bring the clan the clan to heel, and uh, in fact, th this is where we come to a different issue, which 
uh, I think you've alluded to already. Uh, there are thousands to be prosecuted. There are never enough prosecutors. Uh, the funding is never provided to Congress for a sufficient number of prosecutors to actually uh, try them all. And some are. Uh, some are sent to federal prison. Some are sentenced up to 10 years in prison. None are executed, even though, uh, uh, given that many people have been murdered, victims have been murdered, uh, execution would have been appropriate, but it was deemed politically uh, um, impolitic. Others are given sentences of one year, six months, two years. Uh, the, the, the aim is to destroy the Klan as an organization in the belief that it will stabilize uh uh, politically stabilized in states of the South, and and that African Americans will be able to participate in in the way their Constitution now guarantees that they should be able to. And what happens next is another story. Yeah, well, but Grant is continuing this war. He fights a brutal reelection battle. Uh, the North is weary, as you said. They don't. They want this sort of out of sight, out of mind. Grant won't. Um, relent, he, he, he wins and continues his war on the Klan. Then we reach a point, recessional, part four of your book, where um, Grant sort of feels that the South has reached a good degree of stability, uh, at least tolerable disorder, I think you, you call it. Um, and the Klan war uh, comes to an end. Tell us about how it comes to an end, and then maybe we could talk about the Colfax massacre as evidence that it actually didn't. Yeah, Grant is politically in a box by about 18, 1870, by 1874. Uh, as I said earlier, radical, radical Republicans who are the political driving itch of the war against the Klan and on behalf of uh, um, African-American civil rights in the South are losing elections. The, the great heroes of, of uh, the radical wing of the party, Thaddeus Stevens, has died, 1868. Ben Wade, uh, who should be a household name, but he isn't, uh, in, in the Senate, uh, has lost office. Benjamin Butler has lost office in Massachusetts. Um, so that's happening. Um, to th the pivotal year is really 1874. What happens in that year? Uh, the Republicans lose control of the House of Representatives. If Democrats regain it for the first time since before the Civil War. Money bills originate in the House of Representatives. Uh, the Republican House will not vote money to support Reconstruction in the South, to, 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 to send troops to the South, uh, or to fund prosecutions of the Klan in the South. So the administration, Grant, is hamstrung politically by this point. Now, not everything ends all at once, but there's a sharp decline in prosecution, arrests and prosecutions uh, in the South from, from then on. Because public support in the North, as you said, is, is, is evaporating. Not fast, but it has been steadily evaporating and will, will uh, nearly lead to the Democrats regaining control of Congress in the election of 1876. Very complicated election. 
um, probably we, we shouldn't even embark on trying to parse that at the moment. Suffice it to say, the Democrat, Samuel J. Tilden, won a majority of the popular vote. In the end, Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, eked out a one-vote majority in the Electoral College. There were months, months of negotiations, horse trading, and so on, that eventually led to that conclusion. But suffice it to say, it was a lot more than a straw in the wind. It was more like more, more, more like a whole, whole uh, you know, brickyard in the wind. I don't know. Uh, that politically, politically, the northern public was not willing to sustain Reconstruction any longer and was willing, willing essentially to abandon, abandon African Americans in the South. That said, Grant hoped for the best. The quote you, you cited was pretty apt. Uh, he hoped, hoped. Did he believe? I think not really, that the South had, had settled into a, to a, an acceptable level of disorder. Uh, uh, there wasn't a lot he could do at that point anymore. Uh, the other, another aspect here that I haven't touched on, but we should at least mention, is what's happening in the Supreme Court. Uh, in these years, uh, mid-1870s particularly, there's a series of Supreme Court decisions that, that essentially gut the 14th Amendment. They don't destroy it, but they there is a Republican majority in the Supreme Court. But these are business-minded uh, uh, judges. Uh, their business, backgrounds are in business. And increasingly, the 14th Amendment is being interpreted as protecting the rights of corporations and determining if that it is not the responsibility of the federal government to prosecute crimes like murder and terrorism in the South. This is a very complicated story. I, I, I unravel it in the book, I hope, in a lucid way. But um, the, so the Supreme Court is not backing Reconstruction either uh, and has, in effect, undercut many prosecutions that are already taking place in the South. Uh, which, which it's clear will 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 be lost on appeal because of the Supreme Court. Yeah, and so essentially, with the Compromise of eighteen seventy seven, which sort of ends Reconstruction, and then the the granting of of amnesty, um, the the Southern Democrats essentially returned to power. Yeah, and state after state. Um, yeah, I, I think it's important to say that uh, there were a hell of a lot of uh, former Confederates left demanding amnesty by 1875-76. They've nearly all been amnestied already by this point. Uh, but yes, they've re they're returning in larger and larger numbers to public life. The, the, the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, is elected to Congress. Uh, and and, and, and uh, so are quite a few other former Confederate office holders. They become elected, they're elected. Uh, and the northern and southern wings of the Democratic Party, as I did before, it's essentially the, the reactionary party of that time. That's an oversimplification. But in terms of human rights and civil rights, it is reactionary. The northern and southern wings reunite, having split over the, over the, over the Civil War. And... Um, movements in every southern state eventually recapture control of the states. Uh, different states at different times. 
They refer to themselves as redeemers. It's not accidental that they're using an essentially religious term, uh, which captures the the spirit in which they uh, set about driving Republicans, destroying, uh, driving Republicans out of politics, suppressing uh, black voters, uh, and restoring white supremacist rule. Their term, their term. They're proud of it, as I said earlier, uh, and. Really, the last state to go under the last states are both South Carolina and Mississippi, which had the largest black populations. Uh, neither state was under black rule, as I said earlier. But nonetheless, once back in power, white Democrats are, are, are able to essentially legislate uh, black voters back to the margins, those who have not been terrorized in, into keeping their heads down and their mouths shut in any case. It must be said that there are blacks active in, in, in politics in many of the southern states, or some of them, until the end of the, the 19th century. Uh, there's a, 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 a uh, black North Carolinian in Congress here in 1900. Okay. The numbers are minuscule. There are certain sections of the South which have such large black populations like coastal South Carolina where blacks continue to be elected for a couple of decades before whites can totally reassert control over every part of the of the region. So you see this through line from, from this period um, to where we are today in certain measure. And so I want to ask, as we wind up this interview of this most important book, what lessons should we take away from it? Well, several. We can't assume that our rights will, will survive on their own unless we, we protect them. Civil rights require people to stand up for them and to fight for them. Uh, that's one. Two, as I said early in the, in the broadcast, that the line between civilization and barbarism, or let's call it stability and instability, is mighty thin. Uh, we, as a people, can't afford to be complacent uh, about the stability of our system, certainly since January 6th. Uh, we should see that. And, and we now see, uh, I'll, I'll be direct, you know, we see one of the major political parties in this country uh, espousing uh, anti-democratic ideas led by a man who clearly doesn't seem to believe in democracy and, and, and adores dictators. This is, this is extraordinary in American history. Uh, and my point is, is simply that that line between stability and instability is very thin and it requires us to pay, not just to pay attention, but to act, to act as voters at, at a minimum, uh, not to tune out uh, what's unpleasant in, in, our, in our political world. Um, three, I think this, this story that my book tells is, is that decisive government action can protect people, it can protect society, it can protect American institutions from disintegration and subversion. I mean, Grant, Grant's action against the Klan succeeded. Ultimately, Reconstruction failed, not because Grant failed, but because Northern voters, voters tuned out and abandoned their commitment to it. And we, thanks a lot. We got it. We got a hundred and plus years of Jim Crow voter suppression in the South and, and, uh, two more iterations of the Ku Klux Klan in the 20th century. Yeah. You, you, you say that. Reconstruction ended as a result of 
northern sort of indifference. You know, the North um, just gave up. And th that's what happens to a free society when there's a weakening of political will and uh, forces darkness um, can prevail. Yes, that's precisely right. It does not have to prevail. And we, it behooves us not to be fatalistic about this any more than it behooves us to, to uh, be, be complacent. Requires attention. Requires attention, even even to the boring side of politics, even to the boring side, legislation that people often don't really want to pay that much attention to. Uh, and it requires really identifying the people who stand up for our values, stand up for our institutions, and stand up for our rights. The book is Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant, and the Battle to Save Reconstruction. Fergus Bordewick, thank you so much for joining me on That Said today. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Uh, your questions were terrific. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please address any comments or questions to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Mm -hmm.